podcast i am carter and joining me as always is jonathan how are you doing jonathan i'm doing fine we're gonna talk about a really big movie and two small movies yes all of which are, are period pieces uh set in america at some point in the in the 20th century um but also maybe somewhere else uh the, <laughs> the first movie is uh i guess you'd call it one of the biggest movies of the year so far um especially kickstarting uh, this summer of, of pretty big movies, especially July. Um, it is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, it is the first Indiana Jones movie not to be directed by Steven Spielberg. It is directed by James Mangold, who previously did Ford vs. Ferrari, uh, Walk the Line, Logan, and uh, some other movies from the last 25 years or so. Uh, starring Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones and also new additions to the cast, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, Indiana Jones is dragged back into the world of adventure when his goddaughter contacts him about a mysterious dial dating back to the Greek genius Archimedes, but also on its trail is a former Nazi scientist from Indiana Jones's past. Uh, It originally premiered, I think it was the opening movie at the Cannes Film Festival on uh, May 18th, was released wide in the U.S. June 30th. obviously it's still in theaters a bit of a mixed reception for this movie it is a metacritic score of 57 and a rotten tomato score of 59 and it's sort of already being considered i wouldn't necessarily a bomb necessarily a bomb but definitely a uh, major box office disappointment considering uh its cost of somewhere around half a billion dollars marketing uh considered um you're an indiana jones fan right jonathan I know you like yes the first and one. No. <laughs> yeah, I have seen all but three of the films that Spielberg has directed. And I think that Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite. Really? I think it is one of the 10 best action adventure films ever made. I think it's just a masterclass in action filmmaking. I think it is so taught and just like it just delivers it's a little under two hours and it just is immensely entertaining it knows exactly what it's doing and spielberg is just you know it, it's 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 an absolute delight so i love raiders of the lost ark <laughs> i'm not a fan of the rest of the franchise or let me say i don't have an affinity for the rest of the franchise. I think the third one is fun. I like Last Crusade. I don't think I've seen any of the sequels but one time. Uh, I remember Temple of Doom having great set pieces and moments, but I I don't like it overall. Uh, The fourth one I thought had moments that I liked too, but that gets really bad in the second half. I really don't (laughs) It sort of falls apart of it. yeah. Now, you before we talk about the you know, what's your relationship to the Ford Spielberg directed? I mean, Indiana Jones is probably the major franchise of my lifetime as far as I'm. I mean, people who were either Star Wars people or like Marvel people like I was an Indiana Jones person. I like the idea of a college professor being an action hero that appealed to me a lot. Um, 
I, you know, I saw them all when I was like a kid, I had them on DVD. So for me, this is like my favorite movie franchise of all time. And I'm not a huge fan of the fourth one, but I accept it for what it's it, what it is. Um, Do you agree though? Like, put it, the, of just the first the one is the four, best. Yes, by by far. Yes, it almost like exists separately from the rest of them. Um, if you want to like evaluate it as like a, a work of cinema, because it really is that like seminal and important to you know the history of movies as a summer blockbuster, as an action adventure movie. Um, it is like really one of the the great movies ever made um, for me. Um, this one I didn't really necessarily have massive hype around it or expectations even though i am a massive indian indiana jones fan because it came was it 15 16 years since the last one um harrison ford obviously pretty old the thing that excited me the most about this one was the involvement of phoebe waller bridge um who i'm a really big fan of her her series fleabag um and her other appearances since fleabag came out but i think she's like one of the best sort of creative voices existing in uh you know you name it movies tv theater um so i was very excited about her uh, involvement in this movie um also the the sort of thing that really became a talking point of this is what people are starting to call the ai opening sequence which goes on for about half an hour um which i'm sure you will have some opinions about um but i guess we could just sort of start with that because you know it's the first 35 minutes or so of the movie it's I think quite different than the rest of it. Um, It sort of presents itself as an original Indiana Jones sort of adventure in the, uh, it's more sort of in the time period of the first three, it's set in world war two. Despite the obvious sort of uncanny Valley, the aging stuff, I thought it was really, really good. Um, And I was, I've always been interested in the idea of Indiana Jones in world war two. So for me to actually see that happen, I was really excited by it. Um, and really enjoyed the first half hour um, for you, someone who I know is not a big fan of special effects and is not like someone who's willing to forgive stuff because he's such a big fan of the franchise. I could see you probably really not liking it, but maybe I'm anticipating your reaction here. Well, I mean, do I have to like critique the first 30 minutes or can I say my overall? <laughs> no, you deal? can say your overall thing. <laughs> I thought this movie was pretty awful. Oh, really? Like really one of the worst films I've seen this year. I, like I just, the I don't even mind the de-aging so much. That didn't bother me. It's just this movie, there's no weight to it. It's so much CGI, not even just the face, like the running on the train. There's no sense of gravity. Even the original movie, for as outrageous and kind of you know, old movie serial it's logic very that it has, there's there's a weight, there's a grittiness to it. Uh, and this new movie, it's just big and frantic and there's no weight to it and it's just kind of artless to me this movie is like you want to talk about ai it's just like it feels like you know someone like, a put in like, like someone put in like here's the type of camera shots and lighting that spielberg does now boop 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 let's make a spielberg movie and it just was so it's i was just bored by this movie i just sat there like i maybe i'm an auteurist but like and i actually like you know some of james mangold's films but i just the action scenes were just so full of cgi there was just no it just felt like nothing mattered there were no and it's like not to be ageist but like 
there's something kind of depressing to me about this movie about 80 year old Harrison Ford running around and it's just like why are we going back to this this late like it's just surely there's something else we can be doing that's better (laughs) I just it felt yeah I just I was really depressed I was just found this movie kind of depressing honestly wow see I really like this movie and I think I think I just need to accept that I have no sort of objectivity when it comes to stuff like this. <laughs> that it could be like the worst movie ever made, and I'm still going to be like, "Hey, that was that was good. I like that." So I wouldn't necessarily trust me as someone to necessarily take their opinion as as valid or um, reflecting how you, as an audience member, will react to it. But as an Indiana Jones fan, I really like this movie. Um, I really liked. I, I like the villain like Mads Mikkelsen, who's just like a bad guy. And the guy who works for him, played by Boyd Holbrook, is just like a bad guy. And you're almost sort of like questioning, like, why is he doing these things? Is he just like the most evil person? But there's He's just something. Yeah, there's just something like good about like a, the bad guy just being bad. He looks, he looks, <laughs> he's, he looks great as a Nazi, Mads Mikkelsen. Yes. The glasses yes. and, and the, he's very the effective as like emitting this sort of sense of like terror and. Um, I thought he was great. I thought he was perfect for the sort of Indiana Jones villain setting. And that's sort of a problem because in a lot of ways, the Indiana Jones movies aren't really about the villains. Even in the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the villains don't really do much. I mean, the Nazis are obviously the bad guys, but um, I don't know. It's just, it's more sort of about the arc and it's more sort of about Indiana Jones than the bad guys. So I think in a lot of ways, this was the best villain um, of any of the Indiana Jones movies um and how him and his henchmen just sort of seemed like just a force that couldn't be stopped and you know something had to be done to stop this evil from you know having this sort of massive epoch affecting you know slightly mythological MacGuffins. um that is something that i think's gotten a little bit weaker as they've gone on the sort of MacGuffins that uh i think they've had difficulty in, in finding a good one or at least one that works as well as the the lost ark does in the first one which is just a perfect it's like the best macguffin in the history of movies if someone doesn't know what a macguffin is it's it comes from a a hitchcock joke it's basically just like the thing people need right (laughs) it's like it's something that seems important in the plot but actually isn't it's just a mechanism to get the plot forward like marion crane stealing the money at the beginning of cycle it's just an excuse to get her to the bates motel yes it's like a plot device basically and and in some ways, this this played with that in, in an interesting kind of way. I mean, there's a it's not like a twist, but something happens near the end. That's like kind of a big thing. <laughs> and the way they negotiate that with Indiana Jones as a character and his relationship with history and with the past. And um, in some ways, it's similar to the idea presented in Midnight in Paris about how the past can sort of be something seen with rose tinted glasses, but the present is the time that we have and that we need to operate in, and that's where it's important to be and that stuff happens. Um, so I, I thought it was a nice little sort of coda to finish the the franchise, and it definitely doesn't have as much heart as the originals, and and Mangold is not Spielberg, and there is a bit of a I wouldn't say AI, but, you know, like a cover band kind of thing, the way James Gold is James Mangold is shooting this and the way that set pieces are, um, you know, shot and set up and stuff like that, that it is a little like a cover band. Um, And maybe it would have benefited a little more from him, 
maybe not feeling so much sort of weight of delivering a Spielberg movie or or something like that. Obviously, I'm reading something into his psychology about the movie that might not be there. But um, yeah, like you saying it's like an AI Spielberg is is being harsh. Maybe saying it's like a cover band that's a little too respective of of the person is covering. And by the way, I really like the actual film AI by Spielberg. I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm too much of an auteur person, but it's like I'd rather watch Kingdom, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull again, uh, because at least that is Spielberg. You yeah, know, but, it's, but I it's, like this a lot, a lot more than that. Um, I just I just found this so boring. And it just, definitely it's is so too long. long. It's really long. Two and hours that's sort and 34 of, minutes. It's by far the longest Indiana Jones movies, which were generally around two hours, like maybe an hour 50, maybe 205, 210, but definitely not two and a half hours so it did test the patience a little bit and there were some times we were like can we just get on to the next thing i'm, I'm a bit done with being here and i don't um, and i don't want to give it away but they they bring back some characters from the past that just feel like oh we're gonna bring this person back for like like they just randomly show up in a car like why is this character here all of a sudden <laughs> and like oh like this major character we're gonna put her in at the very end of the movie and it's like it's supposed, supposed to be like really emotionally satisfying because it's like you literally it's like the credits are about to start rolling and you just plug her in <laughs> it just doesn't work emotionally it's just like really tagged on yes definitely for someone who isn't just gonna you know forgive it all its sense because you're a fan of the franchise and are just happy to seeing it. Like if you are sort of evaluating it objectively, um, I could see there being some real faults that you could find with this movie. Um, I, I think like one of my, the kind of major problem with the film is that like the original film is like great set piece, great set piece, great set piece. Like it's just this, this non-stop. series. It's just so entertaining. And like, the plot doesn't really matter. You know, it's just an excuse for these great set pieces. And I feel like the set pieces are like so full of CGI with this new one. And they're just, there's no, like, it's just like all the bells and whistles and all everything going on. It's like, I don't care. And then like when the plot is churning, I'm like, I really don't care. <laughs> and, and I just like, you know, there's this chase uh, with a little buggy car. You know, I like that. It, I know, but it just, it's like, we've, we've been here, we've It reminded this, me a bit just... of uh, the 1010 movie um, and how you can have like an action scene that's like very well planned or a, a set piece scene that's very well planned out and well choreographed, but can feel slightly lifeless um, because of the technology. Um, and like the scene where like he's on a horse and there's all this confetti and there's a parade going, like, I'm just like, how much of this was even really there? It just like, it was, they just... shot it in Glasgow in the united kingdom so it's but it's like it's almost like even if they did have a, a, a chunk of it that's practical it just looks fake it just looks like like it looks kind of like a netflix movie um and and a indiana jones film shouldn't there should be like no. like a, a tan like rustic like you know old map in the dusty cavern you know that was one thing that... i did not like is when they did the sort of like map going to place to place thing they did a sort of updated cgi version of it that actually did kind of piss me off where it's like oh that's not good enough for you you can't just do the original indiana jones like you know red lines on a map thing you have to do something different i think um, that and part of it is like people some really snotty people like to go oh spielberg and lucas ruined movies they destroyed movies uh with jaws and star wars but it's like but Jaws and Star Wars and the first Indiana Jones and the first Back to the Future 
are like all really yeah, like good brilliant movies. but but like they begot a bunch of junk and to me this new one is like just like fan uh service like ip like yeah. churning out junk to me the boring i just yeah i this movie like i i do think uh phoebe waller bridge is good in the role but it's just like i just didn't she's care great. anything i mean it's it's fine i mean she's gonna but i just i didn't care about anything that was happening in the set pieces which is what makes these films they're just like i don't this is like the, the cgi man. is the main the cgi just runs it for me i yeah. just i don't know I think if you are a fan, you you will probably you know you won't hate it. I I quite liked it, um, but I can really understand how someone could have a negative reaction to it. And you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of like why it even was put into existence. Which, like you said, it's a sole IP retreading, you know, remakes, sequels, stuff like that, which I'm generally not a fan of. Um, but and don't you think it's a little bit sad seeing eighty-year-old Harrison Ford trudging through this? I don't know. A it's little bit, kinda... yeah, a little bit. I mean, I his performances since he's sort of been reintroduced with the Force Awakens. He was in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He was in this, so he's sort of in a period. See, I thought that was great. The, the Blade, Runner? Blade Runner. That is by far of like the Force Awakens. This Blade Runner. Blade Runner is like a legitimately really good film. I think. Yes, and I think that's the strongest performance he gives in the three. I think there's a little bit of this one and The Force Awakens where it's a little him, you know, sort of trying. It's, you know, a bit like seeing Jagger strutting on stage and being a bit like, oh, come on, man. (laughs) And it's just, I mean, so much of it felt just like gross fan fiction. Like how many close-ups of the hat and the whip do we go Ooh, look yeah. like, it just it's just like the 20th time they do it it's like we get it he has a hat and a whip like it's indiana jones it just felt like the the meme of uh rick dalton in hollywood, uh, and hollywood like, pointing point, yeah it's like <laughs> oh look we see we remember that from the old movie we watched when we were a kid i mean i'm being mean now though so it's just like, i just i, I it's the weird thing of like I feel like I have contrarian views, but like I totally back up. Like I think The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film since Empire Strikes Back. Because it's uh, sort of the least fan fiction of the Yeah, the it's like ones. you had an interesting director going off and you know making his own film. Like he was let Ryan Johnson was let, you know, the, basically given the freedom to follow up the Force Awakens with what we wanted. And people were like, uh, no, you did not follow what I expected in my Star Wars uh fan fiction. It's like and then this movie just totally feels like copying Spielberg, but not doing it anywhere near as well as he does it. You definitely could have done an interesting sort of update on Indiana Jones for like he's maybe like, you know, uh, a bit of a dinosaur or like his views aren't like the views we as an audience should agree with. And in some ways, he's it's not like he's the bad guy, but he's not an entirely positive figure um, would have been an interesting play on it. Um, but I, yeah, you know. It's okay that you liked it. I just like, I really didn't like it. I, I really didn't like it. I, I could, just, I could see uh, like the opening half hour. I was like, oh man, I don't think Jonathan's gonna like this movie. I mean, it's like when they're like when they're on the train and like people are hanging off. It's just like there's no weight to this. There's uh-huh. and like and like even as like I mean, people go, oh well, like in the original when this is happening and that's happening. Like yes, they're like going off of old movie serials. It's heightened. It's stylized. But there is a 
there there's a weight to it like i mean i love the the nazis face melting well, in the original raiders yeah it's i think a good old school charm comparison too. is you know a bit like how the haze code allowed people to sort of play with sex or violence in more interesting ways because they weren't allowed to show it and how you know the budgetary restrictions for alien and star wars and the first indiana jones in some ways the budgetary restrictions made them have to be more creative and inventive and gave a tactility effects yeah uh, yeah and yeah. then like an like a you know a real sort of sense of immediacy and, and presence to the movies that maybe you don't necessarily give us stuff with cgi um which is a va- very valid criticism um and I think that it is true in some ways by sort of having all the power of CGI and feeling like you can do anything in some ways it, it almost is more limiting than, than having a budget that constricts what your possibilities are because, you know, you could get fixated to doing stuff and because you've spent so much money on it, you have to have it in the movie. That was a big criticism of, I can't remember what cinematographer it was, but about the, the sets that Marvel uses for movies, how cinematographers were always forced to like show the whole set and like, all the different things they put money into because the producers felt like it would be like losing money if they didn't have everything they built in the shot and how that doesn't sort of allow it to feel like a lived in space that like, you know, (laughs) that other things do. Um, So, I mean, uh, having sort of like an argument or a conversation about the, the state of the film industry or what movies are now, Indiana Jones, I think in particular could be a lightning rod for whatever opinion you have about IP or, or CGI or anything like that. And so in some ways I think it, you know, is representative of the era we're in and, uh, and I mean, the reaction to it could be, yeah, you know, I mean, you, it's my, how, what you think. <laughs> and my favorite film of the 2010s is Mad Max Fury Road. I think yes. that movie is a masterpiece and it proves that you can take an a IP, yeah. yeah, you know, 30 years since the previous one and you can make like truly a great work of art. It was in the top 10 of Caillou de Cinema that year also, yeah. you know? And uh, and then to me, like, I don't have a problem inherently with CGI. Like gravity is like almost entirely CGI, CGI and it's yeah. a masterful film, but it's when it looks like CGI, when it looks yeah. like, oh, that's not happening. And like 80 year old Harrison Ford is not, you know, collapsing down these, <laughs> you know, it's like, it just is like, yeah, it, well, I was gonna another line I was gonna say is I remember John Waters talking about watching like the last like feature films that the Three Stooges did, and they're like 60, 70 years old, and they're eye poking each other. And Waters was like, Oh, they're gonna hurt each other. Like, you, you, <laughs> like it's not set. funny anymore. <laughs> I know it's like the, when you see Harrison Ford, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I mean, for an 80 year old, he's like, doesn't you know, he, he yeah, he's got a shirtless scene where he's I got know, abs. you know. <laughs> But uh, there is an. Someone was pointing out on Twitter today about like, is there any like legit action star that's under fifty these days? Tom Cruise is sixty-one. Tom Cruise. Liam Neeson. I know. Tom <laughs> Cruise. Tom Cruise turned uh, sixty-one just a few days ago, which is the age Paul Newman was when The Color of Money came out. Yeah. And you know, it's like. You know, anyway. Well, he but, said yeah, he's going to be making them till he's eighty. That that just came out during the press tour. Tom Cruise is going to. Well, he sees this as something to imitate, Jonathan, not as something that's that's sad or <laughs> not something you want to see. Yeah. He sees this as like the the apex of acting is being an action star when you're eighty. Um, I don't think anyone would do this, but I certainly would not recommend like randomly just watching this if you've never seen any of the Indiana no. Jones films. <laughs> when it, yeah, at you least no see context. the first one. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you you even kind of need to see the crystal skull because they like reference his son and stuff like that. And um, so yeah. Anyway, I I liked it because I'm a fan of the series. Um, Rank them real quick. Uh, number one, Raiders. Number two, Last Crusade. Number three, Temple of Doom. Number four, this one. Number five, Crystal Skull. I think it, it's list. the same for me, except I put this one last. Yeah. Well, uh, we will be back with two much, much lower budget, uh, much more focused um, period pieces set in 20th century America. Uh, so we will be back in just a second. We are back uh for our period piece trifecta of the american 20th century um probably the most confounding of the three is our next movie uh asteroid city directed by wes anderson uh one of the who else could it be (laughs) yeah exactly one of the true auteurs if we really want to use the word in its truest sense uh in american cinema these days previously directed movies such as the royal tenenbaums uh, the grand budapest hotel um Starring a whole bunch of people, but probably the two main stars are Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, <laughs> this is what it says in Wikipedia about the uh, asteroid city. It's a metatextual plot simultaneously depicts the events of a junior stargazer convention in a retro futuristic version of 1955 stage as a play and the creation of a play. Um, it originally premiered May 23rd at the Cannes Film Festival, was released June 16th in the U.S. I think it broke records for per uh, theater uh, screenings in terms of like how much it made in its limited release in New York and L.A. per theater. It was something crazy. I think it was like Steve Jobs or La La Land had had the record previously. Um, a Metacritic score of 73 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 73. Either I got that wrong or that's an incredible coincidence. Um Jonathan, what did you think of Asteroid City? Wes Anderson is not one of my 10 favorite living directors, but I like all of his movies, some more than others. And I think that his movies are all really funny. Like he makes yes. comedies. They're like, they are like screwball comedies. Like silly. Like, yeah. And <laughs> they're, you know, ra- the kind of rat tat tat dialogue of a, Howard Hawks or Preston Sturges there's a rhythm to his dialogue and he gets some of the best performances out of people I mean he has some of the best actors on the planet like you know half of them in one movie um <laughs> it's like my joke is every movie he does he gets like everyone he's ever worked with and he adds three or four new people yeah, and this, this time Tom Hanks Scarlett Johansson Maya no, Hawk no, no. Who no, no. Scarlett Johansson was in Isle of Dogs Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. The ones that are new this time I know are Tom Hanks, Hong Chow, Matt Dillon, and Steve Carell. And originally Bill Murray was going to play the Steve Carell character, but he got COVID right before. Oh. Um so Steve this Carell's is the brilliant first, in this movie. <laughs> this is the first time since his first feature but Bottle Rocket that Bill Murray has not been in a Wes Anderson movie. He's been every single other one. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, I mean I almost feel like I have to see every Wes Anderson film uh, at least twice to like to consider where I would rank it in his yeah. films. Um, I liked it more than Isle of Dogs and French Dispatch, but I like those films too. 
Um, but it's also, I feel like with every film, he has everyone he worked with and adds three or four more. He also is like Wes Anderson squared. And then he squares that. And then he squares. It's like, this is his most extreme film to date, I think. Yes. I think uh, it's most definitely the most difficult to sort of ascertain it's like meaning um it's definitely the most i wouldn't say like convoluted because that almost sounds like a negative but the most labyrinthine yeah Yeah. layered sort of plot if you want to call it that um out of anyone he's done because at the end of the day i mean most of his movies are kind of straightforward um well a number of them have the kind of story within a story like grand budapest does Yes. Uh, or at least allusions to books like Fantastic Mr. Fox is based yes. on a book. World Tenenbaums um, is like a book, yeah. basically, that we're seeing. Right. Um, but this one really has like, you know, our, this letters. is like a this is like a movie <laughs> of a play of the making of the play. It's like kind of like, where are we? Who and also are like a people? TV documentary about it. Right. And part of it's <laughs> in black and white. And he likes to play with the I mean, I just really enjoy I mean, it's even people that don't like his films or have mixed feelings. I mean, no one is making films like him. I mean, they're so, you know, unique. And, and one thing I like about him too, is that there, as much as there's like, you could look at any frame of his movie and know it's his, there's such a playfulness. It doesn't feel like rote. It doesn't feel like, Oh, he's just going through the motions. It feels so energetic and like he's, you know, he yeah, really like he's is... having fun figuring stuff out and doing right. stuff that, you know, seems like stuff he's done before, but actually is a little bit different um, and is sort of pushing new ground. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, I think, I mean, Grand Budapest Hotel de- deals with some serious themes. Obviously, Royal Tenenbaums does as well. But I think in a lot of ways, this is there's a melancholy. Yes. And like a seriousness and an adultness. I think we, um, I remember in 2019, we were talking a bit about like how the Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a lot of sort of like maybe a little elegiac and sort of like aging filmmakers sort of looking back on their past and considering sort of bigger subjects. Um, and Asteroid City, I think, is along a similar vein as those. Um, I wouldn't say it's like him maturing, well, but if you wanted to be right, put it in simple terms, you could say something like that. I know uh, certainly a people that are like a generation older than us. They're like, oh my gosh, Rushmore, you know, Jason Schwartzman is the dad now. That's how old we are, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, who would you say is the uh, uh, MPV of the film? Who The I standout acting performance? Like, um, who did you really enjoy in this film? Scarlett Johansson, I thought was fantastic. Um, as a sort of like yeah, Marilyn Monroe-esque figure there's one like edit that like had me like totally shook where it like cuts to her in a bathtub seeming like she's like killed herself but it's her like rehearsing a scene that i thought was unbelievable um and her relationship with the jason schwartzman character this the their sort of dialogue and their relationship i found really really uh i don't know it's profound in a lot of ways um all of the child actors are really good um people who i is the guy who plays Jason Schwartzman's son like in something? He seemed like one of those people I he, didn't recognize. He, he's an inside Lewin Davis in eighth grade. Oh wow. <laughs> okay. So I have seen him. I was watching it. I was like, I think I've seen him, but he's he's very good. Mm-hmm. The the girl who plays Scarlett Johansson's daughter is really good. Um, 
And there's a lot of really funny sort of like side performance. Like Liev Schreiber is hilarious as uh, the father of one of the the junior stargazers. Um, Maya Hawke's really good in uh, a pretty sort of small yeah. limited role. Um, yeah, she's my she's to me one of the funniest, the best things. There's there's just this sweetness to her, and it's funny what you know. She's the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, and what's so funny is she, she so looks like her mother. And if you listen to her talk in interviews, she so sounds like Ethan Hawke's. Oh yeah, she's like <laughs> she's like Ethan. You know, she she has just the mannerisms and the speech patterns like the dad of Ethan Hawke. <laughs> yeah, but um, um yeah, I mean. I, yeah, I I think that it's interesting um, how someone pointed this out. This is interesting to talk about. Um, you're talking about Spielberg. It's interesting how some of the most significant auteurs in America have done like a lot of period pieces. Spielberg yeah. has done almost exclusively period pieces this century. Uh, Scorsese you know. has done all but scored pieces except The Departed. Paul Thomas Anderson's last like five films in a row have been period pieces. Wes Anderson's done this Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, it's interesting, it's almost like, yeah, it's like, art is the is the modern world so it's bad present boring these... <laughs> or just too know. awful to engage with? <laughs> I know it's it's like not that there weren't ever directors in the new Hollywood era doing period pieces. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde was one of the ones that started it. But if you think about like John Cassavetes and Hal Ashby, you know, a lot of their movies, you know, Robert Altman, you know, a lot of their movies were set in the present. I mean, yes, there was, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and there was uh, Bound for Glory. But yeah, why, why are, you know, then there's like John Ford, who like every movie he made was a was set in the past, almost, except for like, you know, a few. There were a few that are contemporary. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like Wes Anderson wouldn't be someone who, you know, like Sanctuary or um, Past Lives. And I don't well, think he'd be great at including part of it phones is almost... and laptops in his movies. <laughs> What's It's almost like even if no matter when it's set, you're in Wes Anderson world. Yeah, because even this isn't really 1955. Um, and it's not like the Grand Budapest Hotel is really Europe between the wars it's like you know it's, something else it's like it's like fredonia <laughs> and duck soup it's like a made-up yeah. somewhat european country yeah. yes and this is like it is america but it's you know it's not really because it's also like a play um i mean i was gonna say like i guess people could i think a lot of the negative audience reaction to this movie is feeling like you didn't get it or like what was that about like um it confused me something like that um which, you know, I think is one of the strengths the strengths of this movie, because in a lot of ways, it's sort of about the inability to really understand things or about there not necessarily being answers to some Connection. of your questions. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, in some ways it it's is about just like, about, is there. It's about figuring stuff out, you know, like dealing with stuff as it happens and, you know, making art out of it to make sense of things, which um, you know, I feel like, you know, I allow movies to be confusing or to seem like they're you know, maybe aren't as straightforward if I feel like the director knows what he's doing and is confident that he knows like what it's about or like what the the meaning mm -hmm. of the movie is. And so if and I feel very confident Wes Anderson, you know, wasn't like, oh, you know, just put that in there. Who knows what? I don't know. So I, you know, even if I didn't necessarily understand everything or it doesn't make sense to me, I can really appreciate, you know, that it's 
that it's a movie that may, sort of makes you ask questions. And you're as an audience member, you need to be engaged. You need to be focused. You need to ask yourself, you know, what's this thing about? What what do I consider to be important when I'm watching a movie? Do I need there to be resolution stuff like that? So, uh, I mean, for the average cinema goer, I could see this being a frustrating experience or you know, confusing or or walking out of it and being like, oh, you know, what was that about? But I think if you're willing to accept that the director has a vision and that it, you know, is about something that that you can allow yourself to, you know, to be put in the sort of mind space to allow you to appreciate something like this. Um, I would say, like, more obviously, like... But it's I also very funny. See, yeah, <laughs> well, so, that, like, it's obvious, like, it would be odd to go see the new Indiana Jones film if you'd never seen the others. I would not start with Wes Anderson if you've never seen one of his movies with this one. No. I would say it helps if you've seen, like, Rushmore and, like, yes. you've seen uh, Grand Budapest, maybe. Watch some of his best ones. Uh, but what's yeah, interesting... What's that interesting allows you is... sort of footholds to, you know, see what he's doing and to ascertain meaning and stuff like that. If you're more aware with the things he's been concerned with throughout his career. Because, like you said, in a lot of ways, it is like Wes Anderson squared, where each movie becomes more about his movies than the last one. Um, but I, um, I, was, you keep going. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I think that uh, two things that keep the movies from just like floating away or being just so constructed that they don't have any meaning besides just being production design and being visually uh, dazzling uh, is that they're really funny and there's a emotional weight to the film the Scarlett Hansen, Jason Schwartzman also you know tom hanks is a nice presence in the film mm-hmm. there's this and i also think one of the best scenes is towards the very end it's like is she i thought she was in this movie where is she margot robbie's yeah. scene on the balcony is really touching i thought yes in a lot of ways that's like what brings the whole thing together um i mean I, it's, it's hard to spoil something when even someone who's seen it can be like i don't really know what it's about but like jason schwartzman's character who's an actor in the play like sort of says that in the middle of the play. I don't know what this play is about. Like, I don't know why he does this thing. Um, and I, I thought that was like a very brave thing for, for a movie to do. And probably if it wasn't Wes Anderson, I might be less willing to allow someone to do something like that, you know, 90% of the way through the movie, whatever it was. But um, um, I think I he's, he's say- gained the sort of trust of, of at least me as an audience member that I can, I can, you know, allow him to do things like that and, and be like, yeah, that was cool. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, Josh Olson, uh, the movies that made me podcast, where he said that he, with the Coen brothers, uh, if he watches one of their movies and he doesn't love it right away, he knows he's wrong <laughs> and that he has to come back to it. I feel like with Wes Anderson, uh, like I said, I like all of his movies more or less, but it, I was going to say too, I think it's really interesting if you look on like film Twitter. Like, there are people that, like, say, Moonrise Kingdom is one of my favorites. It's my number one. And another person will say it's my least favorite. Like, people have such varying opinions of what they think are his best or weakest films. I think that's really interesting how, like, there's people that, like, really like Life Aquatic. and uh, People who hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Critical consensus is that I think a lot of people think it's, you know, probably his weakest or one of his, like... Uh Two or three weakest movies but you know it's just it, that's how kind of i mean to me that's almost a, a sign of how strong a director is of how kind of r- the variety of the response yeah. to his movies yeah um, i mean totally i mean and you know autor is a term we throw out he really is one um he's like and de- he's, de- textbook 
Yeah, you know. like he almost like makes the the theory valid, and you know, I don't know how much of like his career is a response to that being an idea, or if you know if this just would have been something he would have done anyway. But um, he definitely also wears his influences on his sleeves. People like Godard and Truffaut and stuff like that. Um, I mean, there's an obvious sort of like Tennessee Williams esque aspect to the um, what's his name character, uh, the one who's been. Who am I? No, no, no. The 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 writer with the <laughs> Edward Norton. <laughs> Adrian oh. Brody's more like an Elia Kazan kind of guy. Um, right. This movie I felt like, but, but yeah, he get he's consistently gets great performances out of great actors, and it seems like actors are willing to to work with him because they know that they'll be in something interesting and maybe a part of them that isn't necessarily seen in other. You know, like Scarlett Johansson doesn't get to do this in in Black Widow or. <laughs> In the game, or, or, or like, like one of the, or like Bruce Willis gives one of his best performances ever. In yeah, Moonrise in Moonrise Kingdom, Kingdom, who would have yeah. thought necessarily to cast him in that role? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean he's he's a he's also one of these guys who just got a big big deal. I think it was with Netflix to basically like adapt the Roald Dahl, um, yeah, bibliography. Or, um, well, well, he's his next film's coming out later this year, but it's only going to be thirty six minutes. Yeah, and I love that. I feel like more people should make forty minute movies, like that aren't like the pilot of a TV show or, or something like that. Like movies don't need to be two and a half hours long. Um, like ones we have mentioned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, I think we both really like this. Um, I, I was going to say, I think Wes Anderson, I think, is probably one of like the major directors working today. If I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think he's ever made a movie over two hours. Or not much over. No, I think you're right. Um, which you know, is, is to his credit. Um, but yeah, I think we both like this. I could understand maybe an average audience member having a negative reaction, at least initially, because they might feel confused. Or, But that's, you know, part of what makes cinema powerful is its sort of ability to introduce ideas to you that sort of come, you know, it's... It's like the the weekend line from the idol about pop songs so they can uh you know you can get people singing along to something they don't agree with because the melody is so good um but yeah i i really like this um movie. just to point out that the life aquatic is uh an hour and 58 minutes as longest movie so yes every movie is done wow. in under two look at hours. you just calling that off the dome um i looked on imdb while we were <laughs> our next movie is I feel like when it was initially released was well reviewed. Um, I feel like it didn't make a lot of money, but now sort of now that we're that at the sort of halfway point and people are giving their best movies of the year so far, it's sort of having a bit of a second life on uh, on demand. It is. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, uh, directed by Kelly Freeman, Freeman, Craig, Freeman. previously direct Freeman. That's not how I would have thought to pronounce it. Uh, who previously did The Edge of Seventeen, um, starring Rachel McAdams and Abby Ryder Fortston, along with some other uh, recognizable faces like Kathy Bates. Um, set Safdie. in <laughs> Benny Safdie, who's in everything now suddenly. Uh, set in 1970, after her family moves from New York City to New Jersey, 11-year-old Margaret Margaret Simon adjusts to her new surroundings while negotiating life as a child of parents of different fates. Uh, it originally premiered April 23rd at the San Francisco Film Festival and was released wide in the U.S. April 28th. 
Uh, it is now available on demand. I don't think it's streaming anywhere quite yet, but you can rent it for the low price of three ninety nine. Uh, on a Metacritic score of April, I'm sorry, <laughs> of eighty four, a Rotten Tomatoes score of ninety nine. Uh, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I remember when you first saw this. I didn't see this until a couple weeks ago. I think you saw this during its initial run. You said this was one of your favorite movies of the year so far. Is that still true? It is my number one favorite film I've seen this year, and I've seen a little over fifty now. Wow, number one. Yeah, I just uh, I've never read the novel. Um, but uh, Judy Bloom is really beloved to a whole generation, a few generation of people, especially uh, young women. And she's been uh, really, she's not let anyone adapt her work into film or television. Uh, she's almost like uh, catcher in the rye. Like she's like holds her work really close to the chest. Yeah. But uh, uh, Kelly Freeman Craig, who did a really wonderful movie, her previous one, The Edge of 17, um, she wrote a letter to Bloom and said, I really love your work. Um, is there any possibility that I could, you know, 50 years plus now, could I make a film of Margaret? And she has her producing, uh, her kind of mentor, James L. Brooks produced the film, yeah. work, you know, worked on shows like Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi and the Simpsons and did films like Terms of Endearment, Broadcast, Broadcast News. News. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went into this movie knowing it got really good reviews, but I hadn't read the novel. And I just thought it was so funny and lovely and heartwarming, but not in a cutesy way. It's actually kind of a quietly profound movie about yeah. faith and kind of existential movie about what it means to be a person in the world. And it's it's like a great period piece, but one that like doesn't rub your face and like, oh, look, we're in 1970. Like <laughs> uh -huh. it just feels lived in and real the clothes and the kind of milieu of it it feels like it there, you see some movies where, where even if it's accurate it just feels like people wearing costumes and fake air, air really and... struck me like that um air the the ben affleck movie and also the, a lot of times movies like that will lean on the soundtrack sort of give mm -hmm. the impression of the time which i know is something martin scorsese really doesn't like this stuff doesn't do anything like gimmicky like that. It's very, you know, straightforward and effective. And it's, it's, you know, existence as a period piece. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm the guy who loves Solo and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Sam Peckinpah, but like, this is my favorite film of the year. I just thought it was just well, such it's, a, it's got such warm. a strong child actor performance from Abby Ryder Forston, who I hadn't seen anything else, but like gives a really nuanced performance as a 11 year old going through like a major sort of life change and uh, all this sort of stuff happening. And she's figuring out whether she believes in God or not. And, you know, how she's going to engage with her belief in God, if she does actually, in fact, do that. Um, I thought it was really, really good. It was, yeah. And like you said, it was like surprisingly heavy at some points, like uh, there's a sort of like domestic, argument scene that happens about like three quarters of the way through it that i thought was very effective it's like pg-13 it's not like a f film for real young kids I no mean, yeah uh, but i think that uh yeah i mean and i think rachel mcadams is about as good as she's ever been yes uh and i think that uh benny safty is one of those people in a weird way because he's also a director um 
he kind of in a weird way reminds me of someone like Sidney Pollock, where like you almost take him for granted. It's like, oh yeah, like he's really good when he shows up in movies as <laughs> yeah. an actor, but it's like, no, it's like he, he just kind of you take him for granted, you know? Yes, because he's uh, he's really effective in these sort of like it's not like like he it's not a cameo, but it's also not like a lead role. He plays like the father. Good, yeah. yeah, it's a yeah, it's a good supporting role of someone who you feel like is a real person. Um, and he's done that in yeah, a few movies now. He's gonna actually be an Oppenheimer, he's gonna be an Oppenheimer, a pretty yeah. big role. In stars at noon, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, that's one thing I've heard is different than the book. I haven't read it, but I think that the book is basically entirely from Margaret's point of view, and this one gives the parents a little more of a sort of not like a backstory, but things to do, maybe that fleshes out their yeah. roles. Yeah, and because uh, the author, uh, I mean, the writer, director of the film said she read the book growing up and loved it and read a lot of Bloom's work. But then she when she thought of trying to make it into a film, she reread it and she, she like didn't even remember the parents at all in the yeah. reading. But now as a mother herself, as an adult now, she thought more of the perspective of the mother. Uh, so yeah, and it's, it's a movie like Past Lives in a way that like is so generous to all of its characters like even the characters that make bad decisions or when there's conflict there's such a you you, you, you it's you, got so much empathy so, yeah and it's in just a, such a warm-hearted movie in that it's just like it's a movie that just feels so good watching it you feel like this is i mean yeah like i said i like solo and you know like some <laughs> messed up movies but there's also movies that just kind of warm your heart and not in like a cloying like oh like this is not like a schmaltzy hallmark movie like no. no this is like a really good film that's yes totally enjoyable yes and sunny yes and you know it's and i think there's a real space and i think it serves a purpose of you know showing people of that age you know being real people and and having real emotions and feelings about the things they're going through in a way that um i think i think is good and it's like a good thing of what is it roger ebert said uh movies are like a machine for empathy or something like that this is very much one of the movies that that shows why that quote is something that's true and why it has value and um yeah i, I think if you have taste like if a 15 year old boy and a 90 year old uh woman like anyone in between like should if they they should like this movie i mean it's just you know, it, it's not like a girl movie where, I mean, like, we're two, you know, dudes, you know, in our, you know. <laughs> two bros. Yeah, yeah. And I just uh, was completely, you know, enveloped. And, you know, I never really had, I mean, obviously, personally, I didn't have to deal with, you know, menstruation and stuff. But that stuff was, you know, maybe gripping's too strong a word, but it was really compelling. And Yeah, like, and you understood uh, why it was a big deal and the concerns about it and the, the jealousy of someone else having it and you not having yeah. it feeling like you're being like, left behind i like the balance of it being like i i laughed out loud quite a bit during this week. it's like l legitimately funny i think but it's <laughs> not uh but it's not um but it, it but it treats the characters like with respect and it's yes. like sincere yeah there's no sort of like pointing and laughing or anything like that um yeah, there's I really also like parts this. where you're just like, oh, oh, like yeah. it's, it's awkward. It cast, <laughs> captures the awkwardness and the, you know, did, I mean, do you remember certain scenes or moments that you thought were particularly funny? Uh, there's a great line where the sort of like recurring thing throughout is, is her having these sort of like one on one 
conversation sessions with God. And the first one, she says, like, hey, God, I've heard great things. I was like, that's <laughs> yeah. really funny. Yeah, <laughs> like, that like, made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I, I think the spin the bottle party is really funny. That was good. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the like the chest exercises to go we must we must we must yeah. increase our bust yeah it's just really like funny human sort of stuffs and um yeah i mean i haven't i hadn't really seen a movie that was really about stuff like this to be honest i mean you um, see so many films about this kind of about boys yeah more so. or maybe like maybe from a more adult perspective more like you're rem- like it's like something like Stand By Me, which is like an about a man who's remembering his childhood. It's not like about a child experiencing the thing. So there's a little bit of like a, a tent of nostalgia or memory that's involved in this. And this is a movie that very much operates in the despite being set in 1970, it operates in the present is and is about present things. It's not like remembering what your girlhood was like when you're 50. It's like about the process of you know developing as a human being when um so yeah i mean even i mean eighth grade is something that's that's sort of like this is something um i can think which of. is much more modern in it's you know because it's about a girl filming herself online yeah but, uh margaret works as both a really you know good period piece but it also works as like i remember the writer director saying she was wondering when she had the young actors read the book whether she thought that they would feel like it was dated or they wouldn't feel connected. And they said, like, we totally still feel these feelings and have uh-huh. the same struggles. Maybe some of the specifics, of course, have changed or but yeah. th- there's still the coral, the core of like, women still menstruate. Uh, and there's still, you know, the uh, the romantic uh, people mature at different speeds than other people. <laughs> Right. And I think that, uh, I mean, there has been a debate in the last, you know, few years about why are there all these movies with uh, Jewish characters played by like Michelle Williams and Paul Dano and Anthony Uh Hopkins uh, and Anne Hathaway and Kathy Bates playing, you know, why can't they get actual Jewish people to play? But I I mean, she's fine in the movie. I mean, I think Kathy Bates is really fun. I mean, and and that was also a character that... there was some complexity added to it as the movie went on that I found very interesting where it's, you know, her relationship is presented entirely positively, but as it goes on, I wouldn't say like her excessive zeal for her religion, but um, you know, something like that. It's some sort of tension enters in um, that maybe wasn't present before that. Um, But yeah, I mean, she's really good. And I mean, it's one thing to like complain about, casting and stuff like that but at the end of the day you know movies are commercial products and some attaching someone like kathy bates to your movie is better than attaching someone like i don't remember the name of the actress who played the mom and you hurt my feelings Um, jenny berlin yes but she doesn't attract quite the same name recognition as, as someone like kathy bates does so you can understand why um in terms like that some people are cast over others despite maybe not total verisimilitude in the ethnicity or or something like that um random trivia do you know who Jeannie berlin's mother is i'm guessing her last name is not berlin no is it someone very famous She's still alive <laughs> oh really yeah elaine may elaine may really yeah, she had her when she was like 17 or yeah, something. Yeah, I was going to say, there doesn't seem like there's a major age difference there. Yeah, Elaine May's 91 and she's like, you know. <laughs> you know. Definitely in her 70s. <laughs> right. 
but um anyway uh i i yeah this is my favorite film of the year i, I really enjoyed it and i i don't know that i would say like i was surprised that i liked it but i maybe say i was surprised i liked it as much as i did because i really just thought it was lovely and i would recommend it to anyone yeah well i guess these these sort of two episodes we've just done are a bit of a sort of midway through the year check-in i think five of them you you really like the one you did in this indiana jones um but I think so far this has been a decent year in movies. I mean, obviously July is 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 going to be the big month with Oppenheimer and Barbie and Mission Impossible. And is there anything else coming out this month that I'm forgetting? Um, <laughs> well, there's always little movies. Oh uh, yeah, Joyride got Joyride got actually fairly good reviews. Comedy five on Metacritic. Yeah. yeah, Mission Impossible. Yeah. So you know, but I think. I, I, there's been some good stuff that's come out well i was i would phrase it that there has been some good stuff this year but like almost all that are like little movies that nobody saw and made no money (laughs) like i think i think like the the combined gross of my five favorite films of the year made as much money as uh you know even a discipline super mario brothers did in its first two weeks no no it it made in its first like you know day and a half literally (laughs) yeah um but uh yeah i mean i can just say real quick my five favorite of the year it's uh are you there god it's me margaret this movie called pacifiction by albert sarah which i actually saw last year at the new york film festival got released theatrically earlier this year um past lives is number three four is blackberry oh i still haven't uh, seen that yeah really good and five uh kind of divisive film got fairly good reviews but i liked it more than some people i uh, master gardener paul schrader's newest film yes another one i'm interested in seeing so yeah maybe a uh, master gardener um you know maybe we'll get to that by the end of the year <laughs> um but yeah we got a big month coming in july are you going to see oppenheimer and barbie on the same day no what i play <laughs> i have a ticket to see Oppenheimer. I bought my IMAX ticket yesterday. For that. I am seeing an IMAX 70 millimeter. Oh, wow. At the Mall of Georgia, which is actually one of the few theaters in the whole country that it's both IMAX and on in film. Uh, and certainly like it's like, you know, I don't even know the nearest one outside of that one. Uh, but my plan is to see that. I'm seeing it Friday at 2.50 p.m. I'll see Barbie Thursday night. That's my plan. I'm going to see oppenheimer at five and barbie at nine on thursday i think have a nice yeah, I, future. <laughs> I, I should have bought the ticket earlier for oppenheimer because like when i was buying the ticket like it was like the very first rows and like on the very edges and i was like, oh really oh, wait. yeah like wow I, so I it's like a, a sold out screening it, it, they're like you know the two screenings on thursday night like the four screenings friday saturday and sunday are almost like there's like 20 seats left and they're all in the front row and on the edges wow but like that's i good. said yeah um i'm in the second row which will be but you'll see, you'll I, see it before anyone else <laughs> yeah the 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 i saw avatar the way of the water there and it's not it's a really good theater but it's not the biggest imax in the world like uh, really? like honestly the one in simpsonville that's 20 minutes from me is i think actually a bigger screen but i wanted to yeah and um when i saw avatar there i remembered like even the first few rows it's not like insanely close it's not, like, like right on it yeah there's some theaters where it's like ridiculous how close the first few rows are. oh yeah no one, it's like no one like like you literally could like barely like conceive like, like comprehend the movie it's so close yeah well but, I'm, uh, we will i'm sure we will be reviewing that by the end of the month 
Hopefully. We'll have to do it as the, the, the same a, episode. Yes, yeah, because we'll, we'll, it's it's there's a whole shtick about you know how a Barbenheimer, the, um, yeah, yeah. The the do you see the great uh, poster that someone made? Some artist like did a rendition of like if it was one movie, <laughs> like Cillian Murphy and Barbie. On I mean, I legitimately like really want to see both of them. Yes, I'm I'm really yeah. excited. I think this is going to be like the cultural high point of of the decade and so I'll, far. I'll look I'll look at little blurbs. But like, I don't want to read any full reviews. I think reviews are supposed to come out for Barbie July 9th. I don't know what it's going to be like for Oppenheimer, if, if it's going to be embargoed or anything. <laughs> I saw a funny picture that someone posted on Twitter. It said, me awaiting the reviews coming in for Barbie. And it put the picture of like Obama and Hillary Clinton waiting to see the... Uh, oh, Osama. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like with Hillary Clinton with her hand over her mouth, like anxiously <laughs> awaiting... Yeah, and someone else put, uh, tweeted that, like, with the guy from MSNBC when the election results are coming in. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. But, yeah, I'm glad, really I'm glad there's excitement around movies. This is a nice time to and, be alive for. I mean, it's one of the actors in the movie, but Benny Safdie, you know, and he's, like, a real film lover. He's who's in Oppenheimer. He said this is Chris's best movie. Yeah. I'm um, excited. It would be, it, uh, Barbie might, I hope it's really good. I hope it is. I, it's supposed really... to make a hundred million opening weekend. So even if it's not, it's going to make money. But I can't well, like, imagine Oppenheim... Greta Gerwig not making a good movie. To be honest, well, like Oppenheimer is three hours long. It's R-rated and has full frontal nudity. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what the box office is going to be like for that because the marketing has actually been pretty quiet. We haven't really seen have... a whole lot. I have not seen the whole trailer for Barbie. I've avoided looking at that. Yeah. All right, well, I, f- I think we've had a good year so far. I think all the the three movies we reviewed today and the, the three in our previous episode, most of them, I think most people would agree, were very good movies. Um, so thank you for listening, and we will be back next time. Bye.